Welcome to Life After CISO, where we'll talk about your next play as a successful technology executive and steps you could take now to prepare for the journey. Welcome back to the Life After CISO podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Perullo. And today I got a special guest joining us. This is my first guest. So Jason, I want to thank you for being the first one on the show and thanks for joining. Thank you for having me, Jerry. All right. So Jason Chan, now, I'm not going to do the whole, like, you know, burn 10 minutes and retell your whole life story because it's, it's too easy to find on, on Google and not to mention a lot of listeners will already know you. So I'll just, you know, suffice it to say that you retired. And so you are perfect for this, Life After CISO. And you retired us to CISO at Netflix about a year ago, I think mid-2021. Is that about right? Yeah, I think my retirement anniversary was uh, July. Yeah, so I'm a little perfect. over a year. Yeah. So you're a little, little further down the road than me. But you're an insightful guy in general, so I know you're going to have some wisdom here. And I'll say that, you know, in the time that I've known of you and, and, and crossed paths with you a few times, um, even pre-retirement, I always thought of you as kind of a quintessential, what I like to call West Coast CISO, meaning, you know, it felt like a lot of your tradecraft was born in the cloud forward, engineering, heavy, dev ops side. I, I avoid saying dev sec ops, but, you know, automation and cloud native stuff. And that's just an area that's really growing more and more. And it seems like more and more CISOs I meet these days are more like that and less like the compliance or kind of banking side. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would I would sort of, I mean, I, I actually grew up on the East Coast, but yeah, I think the last, <laughs> I guess, 16, 18 years of work was uh, West Coast. And yeah, I mean, having worked in, I would kind of think of these three big buckets, at least of U.S. CISOs, as sort of like government, financial services, and tech. Yeah, definitely spent most of the time in tech. Wow. Yeah, I never thought about that. I love simplifying things. That taxonomy works, definitely. Yeah, it's kind of aligned to, to ge- geographies, too, sort of like D.C., New York, and, exactly. and uh, Valley. Yeah, when I throw out that moniker West Coast CISO, it definitely isn't tied to geography. So, it, you know, there's certainly people on the East Coast that are West Coast CISOs. <laughs> So, I mean, separately from that, I would say you've always been a real cerebral person that like, shares your thinking, um, does a lot of thinking, does things deliberately, and shares that thought process. So, thanks for that, and let's, let's dig into it. So, first of all, um, you know, in past episodes, I went through a bit about like board work for CISOs that want to try that afterwards, uh, the angel investing and advisory work, and you know, how those two things kind of float around each other, teaching, because I'm doing that now, and a little bit about consulting. But what I've always wanted to do, and I wanted to wait a while so it doesn't seem like I'm just reflecting on my specific scenario, was talk about when you know to pull the, the cord, so to speak, you know, and leading up to that. And so I've got some, you know, thoughts around that as I've analyzed myself and what led up to my retiring. Um, but I thought I'd start out with you. Let's just put it simple. What led you to retire? Ooh, yeah, it's a, a simple question, but I guess a complicated answer. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I guess I would maybe if I bucket, you know, sort of organize it into two threads. One is like, you know, financially, et cetera, are you, are you able to? And I think, you know, there's a lot of general guidance out there. So I, I don't know that I would dive too deeply there. And then the second one is, is really, you know, your current role or, or your current field, like have you sort of gone as far as you wanted to go? And I guess for better or worse, it always expected to retire like reasonably early i didn't really have any dreams of sort of working into my 70s and 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 so that was always i think my plan and then in terms of when i finally like decided to pull the plug i had actually originally 
planned to retire about maybe a year and a half earlier. And then of course COVID hit and it just, mm. it felt like kind of an unstable time, you know, not just personally or economically, but really um, just for the team. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad I, I hung around for a little extra time because it was a really kind of meaningful experience helping lead the team through just a tremendous time of crisis and grief and sort of uncertainty. But yeah, I mean, for me, I, I felt like, you know, I'd been there about 10 years. I'd kind of grown the team from, you know, just myself to, you know, 150 plus folks. I mean, certainly could have stayed for another 10 years, but I didn't, you know, it's sort of a different job once you kind of get up to scale and you spend your time doing different things. And, you know, frankly, the, the kind of things I was spending my time doing um, were really both not like what I would say my core competence or what I would say I'm great at and also not not particularly exciting to me. So I felt like that was, you know, it's time if, you, if you're not really, really excited, there's too much on the line. There's too many, you know, careers sort of dependent upon your kind of steering the ship that it, it just made sense to step away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, when I think about it, I think there's kind of this classic model of, of employment, kind of like the, the fairy tale, but it, it has that you kind of work because you have to. And as a result, you're, you're kind of tolerating work until you can figure out, wow, I don't really have to do this anymore. And there's an assumption that the minute that you can step away, that you're running for the hills. And, and you know, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate, right? We, we get to do, we get to use our brains, we really get to use our skill sets here. You know, neither of us, we're, we're smashing, you know, granite cobbles with a sledgehammer all day or anything like that. But still, I, I feel like things are a little bit different for people in, in our line of work in that, I, you know, I found it very fulfilling for a long time. And sure, I'm glad I got paid every single day. But I didn't feel like, oh, man, the minute I stopped getting paid, I'm, I'm out of here the whole time. You know, so I, I, there was more to it than comp for me. It was more about other areas I wanted to explore and, and more things that I wanted to do. But it wasn't about wanting to, you know, go have my ties on on the beach all the time. But were you similar that there were other things that you wanted to do? that you just knew didn't fit in well with being a full-time CISO? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think on your, on that, on that point there where, you know, we're lucky to get to work in, in a field that's super interesting and high demand. And, and frankly, you know, it's, it's my, I don't know if I'd say passion, but I'm very, very interested in security as a field because people will ask me, Hey, you seem like really busy for being retired because you know, all I, the time, I, you all know, the I'm time. still, <laughs> I, I still do advising and, and, you know, mentoring and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's not the best analogy, but what I've been saying is like, if you think about, say somebody who was a professional musician and, you know, they were a drummer and like, that's what they did. And that was their job. They were a studio musician and they did that for however many years. You know, it's likely even when they step away from being paid for it, they're still going to continue that because it's, you know, it's just something yeah. that, that makes them happy. And, and I, I mean, that to me is what security is. It's just endlessly interesting problem set. But yeah, to your point, there's a lot else. Um, you know, life is life is short, right? You only get one, only get one, one chance at it. So I, I wanted to make sure I had time to pursue some other interests as well. Definitely. And, you know, when I look at, at, at my decision, I, I mean, I started thinking about it probably two or three years before I left. Similar to you, then COVID drops. And, you know, part of it for me was I thought, you know, I, I can't pull the trigger the minute COVID drops because it's going to look like that's why. You know, from the outside, it looks like you're reactive and you've only been thinking about this for five minutes. And it's, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing. And, and, and who cares what people think? Well, it's about the team, right? You don't want to give them a message that's going to dishearten them 
or, you know, make them um, not feel fulfilled themselves or feel like they're abandoned or that kind of thing. So that actually extended my timeline for sure. But I know when, when I structure, I have this model that I use and now I'm teaching, you know, retention and, and recruiting in cybersecurity is one of the, the, the topics that I actually do in my course at Georgia Tech. And I have this model, this three pillars model, where I talk about mission, empowerment, and compensation. And I always used it like with hiring managers to analyze their employees and think about retention and, and basically said, you got to have at least two of those out of the three. Ideally, you have all three. So in other words, you know, if you're a not-for-profit that has an amazing mission, that's awesome. You got one of those and that may be able to make up for the lack of comp, you know, that you can't really compete on comp. But in that scenario, you better empower people if you give them this massive red tape and bureaucracy that you're going to keep them around at all. And so I, I always talk about it. I actually in the class go through kind of like a, a radar chart and map out different hypothetical positions. But at some point, I, you know, I turned that inward and reflected it on myself. And I went through each of those. And, you know, the ability to work on new things and things that you weren't able to, that's, you know, empowerment, taking it to the next level of just, you know, com being completely independent and being able to, you know, chart your own course. And if I want to work on an entirely different area or anything else like that, that freedom, I could get to the next level of the empowerment by leaving. And then on mission, you know, just being able to work on a lot of things, you know, at, at the company I was at, we accomplished an amazing mission over a long period. But we got there, you know, and, and mission accomplished. And so now it was time to, um, it was going to be a long time before we accomplished something else of that magnitude. And I didn't, definitely didn't want to stick around for another 20 years. But on the compensation bit, that's pretty, for me, I started thinking, um, it wasn't like I, I was, you know, had, had any threat to the compensation or anything like that. But rather I started thinking, you know what, I might be able to substitute compensation from these opportunities I was seeing. And working with, I mean, you know it well, you can't do anything in cyber without running into venture capital firms. Talking so many times to them and vetting companies and screening companies for them and starting to do some angel investing and then seeing the advisory opportunities that are available out there and then seeing board opportunities. For me, it started to be, A, I can take financial risk now. I can get paid every 15 months instead of every 15 days, meaning you know, invest for a longer term. And B, there were opportunities thanks to my tenure and thanks to the track record I established that wouldn't have been there before that mean, hey, maybe I, I, I don't have to stay where I am for that compensation. What kind of you know, factors like that did, did you put into your self-reflection and, and what kind of things do you think that people that are maybe thinking about this or mapping out their future should start to think about? Do you have like a model or anything like that that you recommend? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I had a, I guess, a similar-ish um, rubric or, you know, whatever you might call yeah. it in terms of retention. And, you know, I would talk a lot about, um, I think mission is a really important thing and, and you have to be somewhat aligned with the organization you're working on. Um, and I, I would also think about uh, things like impact and, and the problems that mm -hmm. people can go after and like the people you're surrounded by. I mean, as well as compensation. And, and yeah, I would say similar, you know, I was at Netflix for about 10 years and there was so much change and growth from, you know, going DVD to streaming, going, you know, us mm -hmm. to, to the world, becoming a studio video games. I mean, it was a lot, right. And I, and I think Netflix has a lot of great stuff in the future, but uh, you know, part of it is just like, wow, you know, I, I've got to be involved in a lot of really cool stuff, you know, that, and so I felt like that part of it was fulfilled. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting with the, like the venture stuff and the advising. I mean, obviously I was aware of those opportunities, but 
before I retired, I honestly didn't think about that at all. Like I wasn't planning on on doing that. And And I think to your point, when you've been in it for a while, like people will kind of seek you out for opportunities. So that was kind of a really pleasant surprise that folks were interested in working with me on, you know, random stuff, whether it was advising or, you know, I do some work for a venture firm. So yeah, that was really a neat thing to do. And, you know, it's, it's very part-time, but it allows me to, I don't know if I'd say wean myself off of like the (laughs) full-time thing, but, you know, stay, stay connected in ways that are interesting. One of the things I recognized, you know, having been out now for a year or so was leadership and management does, doesn't come natural to me. So I, I started to recognize how difficult that was for me to perform that role. It wasn't like I was faking it. It's just that that's not my normal mode. So having been out of it for a while, I really, you know, it's it's really given me a chance to kind of unwind from that really constant long-term stress that that puts on you when you're basically operating in a role that just just doesn't come natural. Like you might be good at it. It's just not like a real fluid thing. So, you know, now on the advising front, it's really, it kind of reminds me of my earlier career when I was a consultant. And I I think I'm really good at that. Um, Being able to sort of, I, I love working with people. I love um, kind of thinking and strategizing, um, but you know the a lot of the organizational bits that come with 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 running a large team. Where uh, I was, you know, frankly, like pretty weak at. Oh, that's fascinating. So you're kind of pushing yourself for years to to accomplish that, and I I guess would it be fair to say then that you're in, in no hurry to do that again, and and that's the drummer who is is sick and tired of it. And the minute they could step away from the kit, they're never going to touch a drum set again. Is it, is that, or do you feel any pull to keep pressing yourself in that direction at all? Testing yourself? Um, yeah, no, I, th- I think it was sort of, it's sort of like if to use that drummer analogy, and I don't know how good it is, but maybe it's sort of like, maybe you're, you're like a, 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 a drummer and like a, an accomplished drummer, but like the touring is just like, you hate it, right? You're or a homebody. So you, you enjoy it. Uh, but there's like a big part of the yeah. job that is just is difficult for you. So I, I think it was that. I mean, to me, I love, you know, staying on top of what's going on. I love kind of, you know, big picturing the security industry. You know, I've been in it so long, you know, when you've done it so long and you've been, think, you know, spending so many hours and days and months and years thinking about the same sort of general problem set. You really, um, you know, I'm not saying like I know what I'm doing or I have some unique insight others don't, but, you know, I, I love to kind of collaborate with folks and try to hear what they're working on and see if there's something that, uh, you know, I might be able to add to it. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've definitely always been really collaborative. And, um, you know, one of the things that I thought about a lot, and I talked to some people before I left, before I shared with anybody that I wanted to leave, I picked out a select group of people that had done it before and um, that weren't conflicted in any way and, and just talk to them. And, and for all of them, I, I asked like, Hey, once you're out of here, do people not return your calls anymore? You, you know, so to speak. And I got some good advice, you know, and they were like, well, there's some of that, but generally you'd be really pleasantly surprised. And I got to say since then, yeah, it has been positive definitely. And they, you know, some doors have opened up right away. So overall it's been pretty good, but I don't, that for me wasn't about the opportunity I think it was more almost like a FOMO where I have this social scene, you know, this is cybersecurity social scene. It's, it's very subject matter oriented and I enjoyed collaborating and I always spent a lot of time, you know, outside of my office, so to speak. I, it was FSI SAC and it's trust groups and we actually hosted events over and over again, talking with other CISOs, all that. And it's like part of this podcast, it, to me, I feel like I wanted to make sure I didn't lose that, you know, I didn't lose that network 
not to monetize the network, but just because those are my friends, you know, did, did you feel that way? Did you have any worries about that? And what did you feel panned out in the end? Yeah, I, d- I definitely had um, that that idea of FOMO. I think, you know, I, I think I felt like I'd done enough prep to, to understand like that was going to be a feeling that presented itself and sort of what are some of the strategies to like mitigate that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, a lot of it now, especially with since the pandemic is a lot of so much is online. So that's been relatively easy to stay in touch with folks on uh, I mean, there's so many, you know, discords and slacks that it's it can be a little bit overwhelming, frankly, but it's, you know, it's nice to be able to sort of drop in and, you know, hear what folks are working on. So that's, that's been helpful. And, you know, and in person too, as things have opened up a bit more to kind of get, get in touch with people. And I've also stayed in touch with a fair number of folks um, from Netflix, both that were in my team and just, you know, peers. Yeah, I met so many people, worked with so many amazing people over a decade. So it's been good. Yeah, I think it's been like a good a good mix and and i agree i think you know the field um there's there's a lot of amazing people in security many of them are friends um and you know because i i guess as an adult most of them you meet most of your friends at work so or through the industry and that's certainly i'm, I'm no different there so yeah. you know i've always been very hands-on guy. And so I still like to do what I guess you'd call cybersecurity research. And, you know, one thing I worried about lacking was um, my data set, you know, because if I had an idea, I, I could, you know, generate a ton of NetFlow, right? Or I could, you know, look at actual user interactions with things and I had 10,000 employees of worth of data. And, and so I could kind of test theories and experiment or build or whatever it would be. And that is one thing that I, I have worried about a bit. And, and even like at Georgia Tech, I've already immediately started thinking like, how can I work with the, with the Office of IT and, you know, work with them? Because you, if you don't have a data set, um, you know, when we were CISOs, we weren't going to let anybody in, even consultants in or touch anything like that. Do, do you still like to tinker in that regard? And if so, um, do you have everything you need or is that something that you miss? You know, that's, yeah, that's, I'm definitely no longer like that kind of tinkerer. I, every once in a while, I'll get like a little bit of urge to test something out, but I honestly haven't done that for, for quite a few years, you know, cause I, I sort of, um, like just in terms of like career progression, you know, so I was, I was leading the security, uh, information security team at VMware. Um, I don't know when that was, I guess, 2009, 2010, it was my job pr- just prior to, to Netflix. And actually, when I jumped to Netflix, you know, it was, Netflix is a much smaller company, it was about 500 people. So it was, mm-hmm. it was as an individual contributor, it was as an engineer. So I, uh, you know, I was, you know, whatever this was early 2011. So I was sort of back to doing all the hands on stuff, you know, writing code, and you know, doing doing things. And that, that was really fun. And I did quite a lot of that for, I don't think I hired my first person until like over a year of, uh, you know, in the role. So, and then the team kind of started to grow pretty quick, you know, 2012 plus, but um, so I feel like I got a chance to do that. And, you know, frankly, once you sort of move into leadership, like your ability to, to do that kind of work effectively or efficiently Mm -hmm. is so diminished because that, I mean, that's why you hire specialists and experts. So, you know, I feel like it's, it's fun. I I follow a lot of that. Uh, 
but I don't, I don't necessarily try to get hands on just because I think it's not that it's not interesting. It's just that, you know, there's, there's a lot of other interesting things to sort of work on and look at. So that's where I tend to spend my time. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean because it's it's kind of um, there's a guilt associated with it. I remember I used to have where you know I was a CISO and if I was actually running some command line stuff for a while, I felt like I was being you know, viciously inefficient. You know, I, I I'm supposed to be making decisions that generate you know hundreds of people's worth of thousands of lines of code, so to speak. So if I'm actually writing a single line of code, that's really inefficient. I ultimately justified or rationalized it by, by, you know, thinking about how it, it allowed me to relate to people, right? And it wasn't about the actual product of what I was doing, but it was just, it, it, it helped me get over imposter syndrome, right? Where when I was talking to someone, I, I knew I had kind of walked in their shoes a little bit. Uh, and, and I'd say it's probably the same for me now. You know, there's no way I'm doing anything impactful or I'm not going to discover anything. <laughs> But I'm okay with that. You know, I just, it's more of a just being able to relate to practitioners more than, than just the CISOs. So, um, yeah, changing topics a little bit, you know, one thing that came up in a, in a Slack channel that we're both in recently was um, as you prepare for something like this and financial analysis and the idea of using a financial planner or using a professional. And I confessed in there that I've just always been hyper private. And it's not like there's anything I'm, I'm worried about sharing per se, but it's just, you know, to have all of these financial accounts and all of your plans and your children and what you expect of them. Yeah, you know, it's very vulnerable to talk with anybody about that. So I haven't taken the leap of getting a professional to really advise on the full portfolio and all of that. But it sounds like you have. Is, is that right? And, and what do you recommend to people who have the fear that I have, but might benefit from that counsel before they take the leap? Yeah, no, I, I did. I did. Um, I would say first, you know, there's there's a bunch of different models of financial advising. And, you know, the, okay. the, the route I took was is what you would tend to call a fee only service. So it's, you know, I basically did for, you know, I paid a, an advisor one time to sort of look things over and provide some recommendations and, and you know, kind of like a plan, you know, what she would recommend uh, based on my situation and my needs. And that, that was super helpful. I would say, the privacy bit. Um, so I basically gave her sort of, you know, not access to the accounts, but, uh, you know, uh, ac- information about my holdings and sort of plans. So I felt like that was like a reasonable mix. And, you know, there, there is another route with financial advising where you basically have someone manage your money and they're basically doing it for you. And I, yeah, I'm not a fan of that, both from, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a financial expert. But, you know, I feel like I know enough to sort of manage, uh, manage through that reasonably. So, yeah, I, I wasn't comfortable seeding that amount of control. And, I, and frankly, yeah. I just don't, didn't think I needed it. So, yeah, and it was helpful to me because, um, you know, I was, I was less concerned about, um, you know, did I have enough and more about, you know, is there a more effective way to deploy these resources given that, I'm, you know, yeah. we'll no longer have a paycheck. And, and so it was it was really beneficial to get an expert's insight. And, you know, for me, mostly I, you know, working in a, in a, uh, not a similar field, but in a field that also, you know, has a lot of deep expertise. And, you know, I, I, I'm always, you know, having used consultants for years. I, you know, I think that that's, it's worthwhile to consult somebody who knows what they're doing because they just have the time in the seat and can, can advise you. They've seen a bunch of different things. So, and, you know, frankly, that was really helpful in terms of boosting my confidence and feeling more comfortable. with Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even if you don't change anything, just some validation that you're not making a mistake or missing something 
uh, I could see the benefit in that for sure. So that's definitely helpful. So how do you kind of measure your decision now, so to speak, and, and your fulfillment? You know, what, what are the criteria that like I, people talk about this concept of success a lot. And at some point in my life, I d- determined that success means accomplishing whatever you set out to do. So you could be successful in any manner of, and it depends on what your goal is. H- how do you measure kind of this success of this decision set and your total fulfillment? Ooh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say so far so good. I mean, that's a bit of a cliche answer, but you know, okay. I would say part of the way I navigated, probably navigating is overstating it, but the way I sort of progressed through my career, I almost like didn't really change my motivation from the my very first job out of college. And I was always okay. just driven by interesting problems. And I remember earlier in my career when when i would have like career development conversations with my manager that you know they'd be like well where do you see yourself in a couple of years and i'd be like i don't know i would just kind of shrug and be like i just want to keep working with 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 smart people on interesting problems and again that that maybe sounds kind of cliche but that honestly was you know guided me my entire career i mean i never thought hey i want to be a CISO. i want to lead a team i just sort of you know showed up did stuff when, when new opportunities were presented, I evaluated them, but it wasn't as part of any grand scheme. So, you know, frankly, I, I would say I got lucky in that the, the route I chose was generally, you know, successful and, and aligned with my interests. There were definitely a few career decisions I, I, I don't know if I'd say I regret, but they weren't the right decision. Um, but overall, it was good. But, you know, even like when I was at Netflix, like I said, I mean, I, I came in there as, as an engineer. I didn't have any ambition to sort of lead anything. And it was just that, you know, I wanted to keep working on interesting problems and doing interesting things. And that just involved building out a team and a function. So um, when I when I look back, I guess, 14 months sort of post-retirement, I certainly had no regrets. I thought, you know, honestly, when I, when I left Netflix, because I'd been there so long, I was going to have all kinds of like, you know, pangs of missing yeah. the grind. But, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was funny because Friday was my last, a Friday was my last day. And I remember waking up on Saturday and being like, oh, crap, you know, I forgot to update these Google Docs. And, you know, yeah. I was like, oh, I need to tell so-and-so about this. But by Sunday, you know, it was just completely <laughs> gone. I mean, and I just didn't think about it at all. And, and I just, and it's been like that. I've had no desire to sort of go back and no regrets. And, you know, that, that doesn't mean it's been um, smooth because, you know, part of it's a, it's a really, really big adaptation because, you know, one of the questions that people need to ask themselves as they step into retirement is like, if work is a big part of your identity, right. Is then w- who are you going to be when that part of your identity no longer exists? Right. So if, you know, if, if part of my identity was, hey, I'm the VP of information security at Netflix, well, when you're no longer that, is there something that sort of fills that void or, or do you need something? Like how much sort of external validation do you need from that dimension of your identity? So, you know, those are things that everybody, you know, that's a, everybody needs to kind of navigate that in their own way. But um, I, I definitely struggled the first few months of trying to figure out you know, what, how do I, you know, what are the right things to sort of do and pursue and how do I spend my time? So it takes some time to work out. I would say now I feel pretty good. I'm still kind of tweaking things, but, um, yeah, I would say it's, it's been good. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you had a good point there and, and if, if I can probe on it, like, 
when you self reflected, how much of it of that was your identity? Like personally, and I'll speak to it too, just in reciprocity. But did did you find that was something? And if so, what do you think your new identity is? Yeah, yeah, I would say um, you know professionally, yes. It, it, you know, I would say that I think you kind of are are, are forced to have that a big part of your identity. Sure. Um, I don't think, like as an overall human, it was um, out an outsized you know part of my identity. Where I think I think some folks kind of fall into that, where like the work is kind of everything, and then when that's gone, you know, they sort of don't know what to do. So I, I guess I've been pleasantly surprised at my um, ability to kind of like let that part of you know not not just your identity, but you know the sort of you know attention that you get because of that. Because you know a lot of these. You know, CISO is, I mean, it's a hard, hard job, but it's also a prestige job, right? It's like, you know, people people want that role. People sort of admire folks in that role. Like you get attention from folks. Um, so in that, you know, that was, you know, was definitely a, a, a an interesting kind of side effect or benefit of the role. But yeah, I, I mean, I've been pretty happy with my ability to kind of let that part go. And I, I think I, I probably would have expected to have a harder time because, you know, it, it, it was a big part of my identity and you know, I, I, and I was, I don't regret that because I, but I, I work, you know, very, very hard, you know, that, that 10 years or so. And, um, it was a great time. I mean, I worked with amazing people and we, we solved amazing problems and I really, really, really enjoyed my time there, but, um, yeah, it was just time to, to move on. And so I, I, yeah, frankly, I've been pretty, pretty pleased with the transition. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I totally know what you mean with the identity thing, and and people, you know, recognize that about you. For me, I feel like, and I'm glad you qualified it all like professional, you know, because there's a distinction there. But yeah, you know, I do still have a professional identity or identities, but it's somebody will sometimes be introducing me, and I'm not even thinking about it, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, you know, he's a professor." I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> I'm a professor? I, I guess that's Thanks. true. I'll go with this cool I mean, there's not a, nothing bad about that but i don't have this professional you know one-stop identity anymore um i'm, I'm definitely a cybersecurity person <laughs> floating in that but you know it might be a little easier because i have young children you know and and they kind of identify you as as dad and non-stop and so <laughs> that in itself is a full-time identity that it's all consuming so i feel like if anything i have too many identities at the moment yeah, it was, uh, it was funny. Now you mentioned, I don't have kids, but, um, you know, I have uh, a couple, you know, nephews and a niece and I had this weird, like, um, confluence of personal and professional life where my, um, because, you know, I, I would say I'm reasonably known in our field, but, you know, obviously, you know, this is sort of as micro celebrity as you can get, you know, to be sort of known <laughs> in such a niche field like InfoSec. But my uh, my nephew was playing Call of Duty and I guess, you know, he was chatting with somebody he plays with who, who happened to work in security. And uh, somehow, I don't know how the conversation developed, but he, he had heard of me. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I remember my nephew saying, oh, well, I didn't know you were you know, this famous. You know, famous security guy. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, you know, but you know how it is. Like your, your, your nieces and they'll always kind of take you down a few notches if your, your head's getting too big. But that was, yeah, that was yeah. kind of an interesting, um, it was, it was kind of neat to sort of like have my family kind of get exposed to some of that. Yeah. Well, you know, let me ask you that. I, I probably should have started out with this, but it's interesting. I mean, I think like as far as when you start working and you, and whether or not you kind of assimilate, that work as your identity and whether or not you spend all your time doing that thing about that or not. Uh, a lot of it is probably formed by 
kind of what you expected when you were, you know, growing up and, and when you were in school and what you thought about employment, all that. And, um, and, you know, one thing we never talked about, I, I see you went to college at Charleston, which is pretty wild to me because I went to Clemson. So, you know, we probably, and, and I grew up in South Carolina on top of that. So oh, did you? Yeah, a lot so of did folks I. go to, yeah. see. What, what part was, were you in? Uh, I was just in a suburb of Charleston, Goose Creek, a little town about 30 minutes out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I knew a lot of people from, uh, from Goose Creek. Definitely. Uh, and so like when you came out of school though, family wise, like was career everything. And was that like kind of defined as what would, or were you one of the first people to come to go into school and to go into a white collar work? Like which side of that spectrum are you on? Yeah, I was definitely, you know, kind of one of the first, you know, my, my dad's side, my dad's family um, immigrated to the U S from China via Hong Kong in the late sixties, early seventies. And uh, my dad, my dad went to college after he retired, but he didn't, um, you know, he didn't uh, go early and my mom went to college, I think in her thirties, but um, she was a, mm. she's been a, an accountant for many years, but yeah, I, I mean, I would say also, cause it, it's been interesting cause I get a lot of um, inquiries from folks who are wanting to know how to break into the field. And, um, yeah. you know, frankly, I feel like not very well qualified to answer that since I got into the field so long ago, it was such a different field. And, you know, yeah, I graduated college in 97 and, you know, the work, force was just completely different i mean when i even when i picked my college i only applied to one college like i didn't like i you know i was going to go and think about going to military and then you know I, I decided to go to college and then um but like jobs were i don't know if they were plentiful but they were there and so i didn't i mean i i majored in sociology so you talk about like not a particularly applicable discipline um you know i've been been doing computers and stuff for forever but um yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about it, you know, like the ability to get a job or a career was not at all like in a, a critical thing. I mean, certainly like being able to support myself and financially, yes, but um, career wise, it just wasn't, I had no, like my parents weren't like super pushy or anything in terms of academics or aspirations, you know, they just kind of like let us do our own thing. So, yeah, you know, so kind of getting into late nineties, I mean, you, you, you know, they, they, there wasn't really, there wasn't really a, an industry to speak of, right. The only folks that yeah, had security right. teams were financial services or military, you know, you, you, I mean, not even, you know, most companies probably didn't have, you know, connections to the internet at that time. So it was, it was a different time. That's right. Yeah, no, I know it well. I remember I was driving around uh, Clemson and Greenville, South Carolina in, in those days, you know, 95, 6, 7, yeah. cooking up companies with AS400s to yeah. IP, to, to a T1 line or something crazy like that. Yeah, like a fracture uh, right. probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We were selling it was at an ISP, so absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's right. And and I think, like, I, I, I had a similar upbringing in that um, th there wasn't like this, oh, yeah, you have to go to to – this college and this is what that means and you have to do this that, and the other i was kind of figuring out you know on my own but i think that lack of pressure really makes you know later in your career when you decide to change and, and to completely uh change course and whether it's retirement or anything else takes a lot of the pressure off i, I would imagine for some people that grew up with a lot of pressure like that that can be really difficult you know, they can get second guessed so that's actually fortunate yeah yeah i agree Well, thanks so much for coming on. I definitely have uh, you know admired a lot of the things that you've shared over the years, 
And I'm really, you know, proud to be in the same bucket as you as, as a retired CISO, at least. <laughs> and any parting advice for, uh, you know, anyone that's that's two or three years out of, in particular, like maybe anything that you wish you had started prepping for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say you know, there's a whole kind of field around, you know, positive psychology and kind of like the science of happiness and just like understanding what really matters versus what you think matters and what society teaches us matters. So I would say I highly, highly recommend folks explore that. I would say like one of the the kind of seminal readings I had when, you know, I was thinking about it was, uh, you know, Leo Tolstoy, he wrote a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And, uh, you know, you really... Um, you really have to sort of think about what's important in life and, you know, how do you want to spend your time? And, you know, because there's another quote, I forget who said it, but, you know, they say comparison is the thief of joy, right? And you're always, there's always somebody mm. with more money or smarter or better looking yeah. and, and, you know, learning how to be happy with what you have is like, is such an important thing. So I would say if you're, if folks are, are not familiar with that literature, that field, it's, it's, it's highly, highly beneficial to give it a little digging. And one um, a podcast I would recommend was from uh, Arthur Books. He did uh, Art of Happiness. Um, or maybe it was Art of Happiness or Science of Happiness podcast. He only ran one season, but it was a couple years ago. I was That was like a really, really nice close companion for me during that first year of COVID. But definitely worth uh, a listen or a read if you're not, especially if you're not familiar with that. Oh, that's great. I love that because, you know, I talk a lot about kind of tactical things, you know, of, you know, start talking to this type of group and, and, and you know, expand your network and all that other kind of stuff. But I think without that foundation, uh, you, you miss a ton. And with it, on the other hand, you know, you can really lower the, the, the hard requirements of what you think you have to do and, and open up your opportunities quite a bit. Mm -hmm. and, and that Tolstoy piece, if I remember right, is um, you know, totally public domain. I think it's just a web page somewhere to blast it out. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a, it's a real quick read, but hopefully, hopefully yeah. helpful. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks for being on. And um, let's definitely stay in touch. And if uh, anybody... Uh, once I get in touch with Jason, I'll have a, a way to track him down. Don't worry, I won't just dump your SMTP, but we'll, we'll figure out a way uh, in the show notes. Awesome. But thanks much. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate it. All right, speak soon. One, two, three, four. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the content and are looking forward to the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Certainly share your feedback and ideas for future episodes. 